Anyone in the room consider themselves a reader? Like you just love to read? Yeah? How, we, how about like halfway readers? It's like, I like to read if there's something good that grips my attention, something like that. Yeah, I'm kind of in between those. Um, but one of my most interesting things I've always enjoyed about reading is learning actually about the authors. And recently I came across or the, the reminder of these things called pen names. These are when authors would intentionally write books or, or articles or parts of magazines, but they would hide their names. And the history behind a pen name is when an author thought that the, the the real name would cause some type of issue. And sometimes throughout history, it was, well, female authors didn't want their words to be kind of neglected because they were female, so they would give themselves a male pen name. Or perhaps there were certain stereotypes of what their name sounded like that people would maybe uh, listen to them or not. Here's some famous pen names throughout history. Charles Ludwig Dodson, you'd know him as Mark Twain. Miss Silence Duguid. Benjamin Franklin, and in 2013, the New York Times bestseller, Robert Galbraith, is actually the queen of novels herself, J.K. Rowling. It's interesting because I think what that tells us is sometimes the power of words are more in who wrote them than sometimes the words themselves. Now, I don't know about you, but is there a, maybe a particular book that was your favorite as a kid? I want you to take a moment, maybe think about a particular book, or maybe there's something today that like, man, I could just remember to a T what this book or this, this certain novel is about. For me, growing up, my favorite book was this book called Go Dog Go, right? It's now a Netflix show, and I used to remember reading that with my dad all the time. Well, like a couple weeks ago, uh, it was Dr. Seuss week at my wife's school, and she comes home and she says, Eric, what's your favorite Dr. Seuss book? I'm going to get it, bring it home with the kids. And I said, Go Dog Go, without blinking. She goes, um, that's not a Dr. Seuss book. And I was like, honey... Yes, it is. And she's like, uh, no, I teach first and second grade. I would know you wouldn't. And then she shows me the cover. Who's P.D. Eastman? I've been lied to my entire life. It's not a pen name. It's a real dude. Wasn't Dr. Seuss. But why does it have the cat in the hat up here? I was just like, so I was like, all right, son, we're going to have to have a talk here. You got to pick a different book, okay? It's interesting. There's certain books that maybe stick with us throughout time. Other books that top my list would be a book called uh, A Tale of Three Kings by Gene Edwards, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, definitely others in my top three right next to Go.Go. Words can encourage us. They can bring us maybe some, some compelling nature, can give us life or hope or meaning or purpose when everything else seems to be waning. And that's where we're headed today. We're going to talk about the power of words, but not just any words, the word of God, the Bible. And I want to start by kind of this idea that perhaps the Bible has power, not because it was written down, but because who wrote it down and gave it to us in the first place. Today, we are in week three of our teaching series called Three Peas in a Pod, in which we've been looking at what are just three things in the life of a Christian, the life of a disciple, that just go hand in hand with following Jesus. Week one, we talked about prayer. Last week, we talked about our possessions. And today, we're talking about personal study. See, now you're pushing it together. Three Peas in a Pod. Okay, anyways. And when we talk about our personal study, kind of just like prayer, I think a lot of us would have this, the answer, uh, well, Eric, I... I kind of should be in the Bible more. Or, girl, you know, if I'm being honest, yeah, my Bible time, my personal study isn't quite where I think it ought to be. And you, like me, might have some of these roadblocks. Some of your roadblocks might be something like this. Number one is you might say, well, I don't understand it. 
There's some old places, old names. I don't really speak any of the ancient Hebrew or Greek that the Bible was originally written in. I'm not really sure I understand it. To which I'm like, yeah, I went to school for this and I still don't understand it sometimes. But that doesn't negate the sweat that we need to put in in order to apply it to our lives. You might say something like this. I'm not sure I believe in it. I'm not sure I believe the Bible to be what it claims to be, the the living word of God. Now, that's a different sermon for a different time, but that might be where you're at of maybe why you don't engage with Scripture. You might say uh, something like, well, I don't really have the time. I'm just going to let that one sit because I think we all have time for the things that we find most valuable and most important in life. You could say, well, it's old, it's dated, it's boring, and it's just a bunch of rules that I don't really want to spend some time with. My response to that would be like, there's definitely some old stuff. There's definitely some laws and some rules written down, but it is so much more potent, so much more powerful than just a bunch of rules that tell you about life. You might say, well, isn't the Bible just about how to get to heaven? And I already got that. I already kind of got my relationship with Jesus. What do I need the Bible for? And the Bible's not just about how to get to heaven someday, but invites you how to live out that reality now. Push all of those aside. I would say the number one thing I hear from people, why don't you maybe spend time personal study as much as you should? It's probably because this. I don't know how or where to start. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but if you're like me, that's oftentimes where sometimes we find ourselves. I don't really know how or where to start. And so before we get into some practicals of how to maybe spend personal time, I want to answer the question, though, of why. Why even turn to the Bible in a regular rhythm in the first place? So if you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1 this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, found in the back of your Bible. If you're new with us, you can download sermon notes on our app. You can also grab them on your way in. Highly encourage you, take notes. And on those notes, there's actually discussion guide, study material for you throughout the rest of the week. 1 Peter was written by one of Jesus' closest friends and disciples named Peter. Peter, the guy who Jesus said to him, Peter, you will be the rock. You will be the foundation of the church. And after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, he sends Peter, John, and James, those three disciples, he sends them to Jerusalem. You start the church. And Peter begins over time to write down some of the most important things he learned in his leadership about following Jesus. And he spends a lot of time talking about the power of the word of God. In verse 17, this is where we're going to start this morning. Peter says this. He says, since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as gold and silver that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. He's talking about the bondage, the oppression of sin given to us from Adam that we are all born with that separates us from God. But you have been redeemed of this with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So and so your faith and hope are in God. Peter begins something here in verse 17 that sometimes I think we miss when he simply says, you call on a father, you call on God impartially and he returns to you impartially. What this simply means is that there is something perishing inside each and every one of us because of our sin. 
That there is something perishing inside of you because of your sin, your disobedience to God, the way that you were born. And Peter says, let me remind you that you call on God impartially, meaning it is up to you to make that sole decision on if you will believe in the precious work of Jesus or not. Now, for some of you, that might be really, really good news because you come from a a family, maybe a rhythm of life. You come from somewhere where there's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of poor choices. There's a lot of decisions that were made that you don't agree with Christian or not that you would say, man, is this what life has to offer? To which Peter would say, you have been judged impartially, that none of that will be held against you. Now, some of us, this is kind of bad news because what that also means is you don't get to rest eternally in the heavenly father's arms based on a decision that someone else made. The religion or the choices that your parents made growing up, that your grandma took you to church or VBS for a time, you don't get to rely on their decision to follow Jesus. You have to make a choice for yourself. No exclusions, no exceptions. And Peter says, so make the choice to trust, to believe in, to have faith in something that does not perish. Not silver or gold, he says, that things that mankind can make with their own hands. Rather, the imperishable blood of Jesus Christ. Let me just give you an example of what I think this kind of, he's getting at. One of the ancient seven wonders of the world is called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Okay. It was given by the king Nebuchadnezzar II, and he had this idea because his wife was from the land of Persia, and she was super homesick. And the, the, the lush green forest of her homeland, she just missed home, wanted to be home. And so Nebuchadnezzar was like, yo, you're my honey, you're my boo, you got to stay here with me. But I don't know if you've noticed, I'm loaded. We can do anything that you want in the entire world. And so here's what I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do for you, sweetie. I'm going to make you the most magnificent, most beautiful, most, most gorgeous greenery that the world has ever seen. And he did. Who knows how much money was spent creating the hanging gardens of Babylon. But if you were to travel there today... You wouldn't see these these greeneries existing. You wouldn't see these magnificent waterfalls. You wouldn't see what some archaeologists call the most beautiful and unbelievable thing mankind has ever made. You would just see a few ruins. They did not last. That's because everything humankind does, everything that we can muster in our own minds, everything that we claim, say, or control with our hands, our actions, our hearts, it will eventually fade. It will not last forever. That is why we need something permanent. To combat our perishing as the result of sin with something that is imperishable. That the permanence of of sin in our life is only overcome by the blood of Jesus Christ. As Dr. Teal so, so magnificently said, and this is what we're getting ready to celebrate. This Friday, we'll spend time as a church remembering the cost that it took for Jesus to give up his life, to pour out his blood, his body broken, so that we may be born of imperishable seed. And then three days later, we will gather publicly to celebrate, to worship that magnificent choice that we get to partake in, that Jesus is the resurrected Savior. And as Aaron said, is if you have not made that choice, there is no greater way to proclaim, I want to be born of imperishable seed than by saying, make me baptized. Death to life through, the, through the, the immersion of water, this is how I declare to the world that I am born of something that does not fade. 
And that's what we learn about in the entirety of Scripture. Why did Jesus have to die? What did it take for Christ to die? How do we believe? How do we live? In? That's what Scripture begins to tell us. The why of Scripture isn't just here's how you get to heaven. This is why Jesus came. This is why Jesus lived. This is why Jesus lived perfectly. This is why he had to perform. This is why everything rests on Jesus so that you may believe and have faith. And yet we go towards the Bible with sometimes some, some skepticism, do we not? And maybe it's skepticism you have or someone close to you, or, or a friend, a family member, a coworker. Well, I don't know, the Bible's just kind of out of date. It's just a bunch of rules. Pfft. Bible, that was 2020 something years ago. We're in 2022. We've progressed, we've evolved past needing an ancient piece of history and documents. Well, it's fine for my grandma, but what about the real scientific age of the earth? It's interesting, though, because throughout history, the things that have come at the Bible the hardest have never been perhaps its truthfulness or its logic or its reason. The things that oftentimes have come headlong with Scripture are the cultural moment surrounding it. The ancient Roman Empire wanted nothing to do with, well, shortly after the resurrection of Jesus, they wanted to get rid of the Bible, not because is it true, but because it says there is a Lord outside of Caesar, whom you are called to worship. In the Enlightenment period, I think, therefore I am, is their whole entire mantra and philosophy. They rejected the Bible because it told people there is a way of thinking, a way of being, a way of living, a source of truth that is outside of yourself. How many people today do you see sitting at Starbucks reading Descartes, Rousseau, Voltaire? Why? Because in the cultural moment, it didn't fit. I've heard things today, I had, a, had a, a friend probably a few months ago who said, Eric, I don't really enjoy the Bible anymore because it's not focused on justice enough. To which I would say, then you're probably not reading the same Bible I'm reading. From womb to tomb, God very much cares about the justice and things around them. Culture always wants to ask this singular question. Does God fit the mold I believe a God to be? That's what culture wants to ask. And when you begin to discover the God of the Bible, people begin to say, well, that's not what I think a God should be. That's not how I think a God should act. That's not really the way that, that, that God should kind of entertain the world and humankind and everything with it. God doesn't fit what I believe a God ought to be, so that God in that Bible can't be true. Hey, husbands, you ever try that with your wife? You should. It'd be super fun for you. Go over, like, amazingly. Ever try it with a boss? A friend, a neighbor. We wouldn't dare try to use that logic or reason anywhere else in life. But then when it comes to scripture, well, God of the Bible isn't what I think a God ought to be. Therefore, he cannot be true. It's not the point. It's the exact opposite. You see, the point of the Bible isn't to show you how God fits into your world. Rather, how you fit into his so the point of the Bible isn't to say there's this God up there created and you live your life and we're going to show you how to squeeze him in and pinch him, hold him in. And when you can find time and space, this is how God can interact with your way of life and your decisions and your choices. Let's see how God can fit into your life. It's the exact opposite. There's a sovereign creator, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, who said this is the world, everything in it by the breath of his own word has been created, and we live in his world. He does not live in our world. The point of the Bible isn't to show you how God fits into your way of thinking. 
The point of the Bible is to show you how we fit into his. He is creator. He is Lord. He is sovereign. He has the plan, the desire for all people to be saved from their sin, to experience his eternal love, to believe in the gospel message that Jesus Christ rose from the grave so that we may have eternal life. We live in his world. He does not live in ours. Peter continues then in verse 22. He says that now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. Peter's saying this, if you apply scripture, it should show itself out in love. For you have been born again, that's John 3 language, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For, and here he quotes the prophet Isaiah, all people are like grass. Their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord. I always want to say it like super like Southern Baptist. The word of the Lord endures forever. This is the word that was preached to you. Peter says the living and enduring word of God. The word word comes up a few times in just about two verses. And it's used in two different uh, Greek words. In one sense, it's, it's the, the Greek word logos. It's the same word that John uses in his gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was God. The word was with God. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Logos meaning Jesus Christ. Peter also uses a different word. He says drema. That is a written word, but he uses them interchangeably. He uses them back and forth as if to say that the word of God, the written word of God, the Bible is Christ. And everything of who Christ is has been recorded so that we may know, so that we may believe, and it does not fade away. There is an an immutability. There is a, a, a sufficiency, a supremacy in Jesus. Therefore, there is one in Scripture as well. In the late 1800s, the author Sir Conan Doyle, if you're an old-time reader of novels and whatnot, you might recognize that name. He's the guy who came up with Sherlock Holmes. And uh, he believed, though, that he had some deeper, more meaningful work to be done uh, because he wanted to write historical fiction. I don't know what that means, but he wanted to write it, and he thought it was more important. And so after a few years, he killed off Sherlock Holmes at, at Reichenbach, if you're familiar with Sherlock Holmes, because that way he could commit himself to writing his historical novels. Now, the interesting thing about it is he thought if I got rid of Sherlock Holmes, then people would know my name and they would read my other stuff and be like, man, look how smart you are. Look how good this is. And for nine years, he wrote and wrote and wrote and nobody ever bought it. The only correspondence he tended to receive was like, hey, you gonna bring Sherlock back? Hey, 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 hey. like, uh, I know you read this other stuff. I don't really care about that. When's Sherlock coming back? And after nine years, he finally gave in to the public's wishes, the public's demand, and he resurrects Sherlock Holmes, and for 25 years, against his deepest desires and feelings, he writes novels about the infamous detective. What's the difference between the Bible and any other written book? It's the power of the author. The author does not care what culture says. The author does not care how how necessarily you think it ought to shift or change. The author has no problem revealing himself. The purpose is clearly stated. It does not sway with the winds of the world around us. 
God spoke, God created, ex nihilo. Everything came into existence out of the, 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 the voice of his own word. And that word has now been captured and placed into the Bible. So when it comes to the Bible, I believe that there's one foundational question that you and I need to ask. And this might be a question you have answered, or this might need be a question you need to answer, or this might be a question that you are wrestling with, but it's one soul question that is also a soul question. You like that? That was good. It's this. Is God authoritative? Is God authoritative or not? One simple question. It's interesting, if you were to read through scripture, whenever Satan tries to detract people away from God's will and God's purpose, he's not going up to people saying, yeah, do you really think God is true? He doesn't try to sneak into their lives. Do you really think God is wise? Do you actually think that God is real? When Satan goes up to Eve in the garden, well, I can't eat of that tree. I can't know good and evil. It's a tree of life. I mean, that's not for me. Did God really say that? Challenges God's authority. When Jesus and Satan are battling back and forth, and he's trying to tempt Jesus to get Jesus to fall, I will give you everything that the entire world has. You can command, you can do, you can have it all. And Jesus looks Satan in the eye and says, Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is God authoritative or not? If the answer is no, then you will probably have a very difficult time trusting, believing, adhering to what Scripture says. But the Bible will still reveal itself. God has clearly communicated who he is. But if the answer to that question for you is absolutely, God is authoritative. He has chosen to reveal himself in this word. If he is authoritative, then we ought to read it, study it, listen to it, and obediently do what it says. It is the fundamental way God says, this is who I am outside of the manifestation of Jesus Christ, of, of Jesus, God himself, being and living as the Son of God. And on top of that, I bet it means there are things that it will say to us. There are probably things that Scripture will say to you that you say, I'm not sure if I like that. You know, God, I would really like to just kind of snip that part out if you don't mind. But is he authoritative or not? Because at the end of the day, there are two types of people. There are people who say, I am above the authority of Scripture. I will believe in something, someone else, perhaps it's yourself. What I think, what I feel, what I believe, you know, if it matches with Scripture, great. But if not, then I'm going to go with what my heart and my way says. Or there are people who say the exact opposite. I find myself under the authority of Scripture. The word of God is how I choose to live my life. Either over or under the authority of God, therefore the authority of Scripture. Here's where we need to be clear, though. That to be under the authority of Scripture means we should anticipate our life changing. 
To be someone who says, I believe in the authority of God, therefore I believe in the authority of scripture. You should anticipate as you read, as you study, as you learn, your life ought to change as a result. But I think that's where we begin to disregard scripture, where we get to push away the Bible and we say, well, I don't really want anyone else to be in control of my life. I don't want anyone else to tell me how to live. I don't want anyone else to kind of point out my flaws, my mistakes, my sins, the way in which I fall, all these things, not the will of God. That's the point. Well, here, let me give you an example. Let's say, wow, that was loud. Let's say... Um, you're having a barbecue. It's barbecue season, hopefully. Come on. And you invite some people over, like, hey, welcome. So good to see you. So glad we can do this. Got some burgers. I'm going to do some flipping. Hey, uh, just go ahead and make yourselves at home in, in the living room and whatnot. I'll be outside. We'll be in in a couple minutes. Then we can get started to eat. And they say, great. And so you're, you know, you always got to slap the burgers. That's, you know, how you get the juice. And you get it all done. And then you come in and you walk into your home and they've just moved everything around. Right? Some of you are panicking right now. Like even this fake story is giving me anxiety. I don't know. I've spent years getting everything, right? And they've moved your couch. You know, I just thought your couch would be better over here. And they ripped the TV off the wall. You can fix the holes, but it's so much better over on this side of the wall. And they've taken out all your pictures and they for some reason they brought pictures of their own face. It does look so good. You bet, what are you doing? This is my home. You don't live here. You don't get to make these choices. You don't get to decide where stuff goes. Who do you think you are? We're going outside. You can eat with the chickens if you want. I don't care, but don't move my stuff. So when you read the Bible, let me ask you, who's invited who over? When you step into the word of God, who invites who over? Are you saying, God, welcome to my life? I hope you like the way I set things up. Let's see if it kind of matches and fits what you have. Or is it the other way around? God, I'm stepping into your life. I'm stepping into your plan. I'm stepping into your will. Let's see what I need to rearrange as a result of this. Don't miss this. I think we mistakenly believe that we are inviting God into our lives when the reality is we are stepping in and accepting the invitation into God's word to hear about his plan, his character, his nature, his will for our lives. Put it this way, that stepping into God's word should lead to stepping out in God's will. It should change us. We should leave different we should change perhaps how we think about things, how we think about others, how we spend our money, how we spend our time, how we go about neighboring other people, the type of coworkers we are, the type of business leaders we tend to be. Because here's why, full circle. Why read the Bible? Why study it? Why live it out? It's because of this. And this is not from me. This is from uh, one of uh, our pastors. He said, you know, one of the best ways, the convincing factors I got is that you may be the only Bible that someone ever reads. That there is probably someone in your life today who has no relationship with Jesus. Zero desire to go to church, zero desire to follow him, and yet you have the opportunity to be the living, breathing word of God to them if you choose to live it out. We get into the Bible so that the Bible gets into us. So enough about why. Let's spend the last couple minutes here talking about how. 
There's no tried and true hows. There's no way that uh, the Bible says, well, this is how you read and this is how you write down and this is what you ought to do. But I want to give us all a tool and application. And so we started off talking this series about prayer and we said, when you pray, you P-R-A-Y. Praise, repent, ask, yield. And so then we thought, well, when you read scripture, you should read scripture. R-E-A-D. You like that, huh? Yeah. Got to keep it low for all of my homies, okay? Number one, when you read the word of God, reflect. Reflect on that passage. Reflect on that chapter. Reflect on that paragraph. What did I see happen? What is God trying to say? Pray for the Holy Spirit's understanding of that text or verse. Write down, if you're a journaler, you can write down a verse, a passage, a, uh, a word that comes up over and reflect on what you just read. Number two, examine. How does this fit into the entire book? How does this fit into the paragraphs around it? How does this teach me about the need for Jesus to come if you're reading in the Old Testament perhaps? How does this point back if you're in the New Testament to what Jesus accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection? You can ask yourself, what does it reveal to me about God? What does it reveal to me about the, uh, the, the world around me, other people? Or perhaps what does it reveal about myself? Ultimately, though, you can ask, what did it say back then? Because it can't mean to me what it did not mean to them. You examine what is kind of just, just happening in this passage. Number three, you then begin to apply it. All right, what does this look like? What does it mean today? Well, I'm not ancient Israel. I'm not, not, I'm not in bondage or slavery uh, by the Egyptians. However, what is the Passover story trying to communicate to me today? What is God perhaps saying to you personally? How might you uh, come to life? How might that be fleshed out in your life, your marriages, your homes, your community, your neighborhood? How does it apply to you directly? Or perhaps you might say, you know, this doesn't apply to me directly, but it does teach me about God. Number four, the last thing you say is D, do. We don't need to do then as a result. We talk about discipleship here, not just being head knowledge, but also heart change. We read scripture, not just get these big old heads and these puffy Bibles, let me give you all this Bible stuff. We do it to say, now transform my heart, Lord. Head knowledge should lead to heart change when we are following after Jesus, but sometimes that's the most difficult 18 inches, six, I don't know, I was about to say six inches, like you gotta have a real small neck, of it, you know. <laughs> Sometimes that's the most difficult part. I read it, but are you putting it into action? Are you doing something with it? What does it call you to do? Does it call you to change a thought about God? Does it call you to be more loving to a neighbor? Does it call you to stop being so mean on Facebook to people you disagree with? What does it call you to do to embody the living word in a way that will transform your life because you might be the only Bible that someone ever reads. I love what Peter says when he quotes Isaiah, all things, even grass, withers and fades, but the word of the Lord endures. The lagos, the rhema at your fingertips. Can't help but think at some point in heaven we'll have the opportunity to go up to Moses. Hey, Mo. That's what I call them. We're tight like that. Bro, what was it like? You took that staff and you plunged it into the Red Sea and, and you walked across on What was that like, dude? That's insane. Hey, David. Remember, you remember that time you were like a little boy? 
and you got out your little slingshot that you got from the Dollar Tree. And you went up to that big old mean giant of a man named Goliath and you took him out because you had faith. Man, what was that like? Hey, Elijah. Is it true? There was a boy who died and because of your faith, your belief in what God had told you, you raised him from the dead, albeit just for a short while. Is it true? What was that like? And we have all these stories that we're going to say, what was it like? What was it like? What was it like? And they're going to turn around and look at us and be like, what was that like? What was it like for you? What, what was it like to do that? What was it like to you? had the logos, the manifestation of Jesus Christ put into a word that you could hold, that you could study, that you could read, that you could know, that you could apply. What was it like to do that? What was it like you could just, you didn't even have to guess. You knew exactly what God wanted you to do. You knew exactly who God was. You knew exactly how he called you to live this life, to transform your world. What was it like to part the Red Sea? What was it like for you? Because you could go up to someone and say, hey, this step, this thing called baptism shows us how we are brought into a relationship with Jesus Christ. What was it like to part the seas, the waves of baptism by showing someone the good gospel message? What was it like to raise a boy from the dead? What was it like for you? You got to turn to people and say, you want to know the good word of God? Seeing people passing from death to life and you got to partake in that? What was it like for you? That is your world, your friends, the people in your family were dealing with the giants of, of anxiety, stress, worry, the bondage of, of sin, temptation, compulsion. What was it like for you to be able to say, let me give you a word that is not mine but comes from the very mouth of God? To see those giants slayed to provide a peace that surpasses all understanding to see a compassion that knows no bounds, to see a love that covers a multitudes of sin. What was it like for you? All things in this life, like grass, will fade, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Never forget that. Never miss that. And we get the opportunity to worship that Savior who's revealed to us right here every day of our lives. So I invite you to stand with us this morning as we continue to worship the Lagos, the great word, God himself.